Hey, good morning, friends. Come on in. A few years ago, I had work in the UK, uh, and so my folks and Janet came along. We decided to make a vacation out of it. We rented a, a, a cottage in Wales, and when I finished stuff in London, we were going to go out to the cottage. Dad and I were going to play a lot of golf, and we were looking forward to that. And uh, <clears throat> before we could get the golf in, a freak snowstorm hit. Not a normal thing in Wales in late spring, but it was heavy, so we changed our plans. We had some great hikes in the snow, and we spent a lot of time just sitting around the fireplace and talking and resting and relaxing in this beautiful cottage we were staying in. Uh, one night, the, uh, the owners who lived in the, in the big house next door, they came over for a spot of tea and to have conversation. We had a long, lively chat. It was really enjoyable. Found out that the lady of the house and I had a lot in common, both professors. Uh, my wife had a lot in common with the guy who was a professional artist, and, and they talked art the whole time. But the longer we talked, the more we realized there were real divergences between us, that we were, that we were different in a number of ways. My favorite moment came when the lady of the house, when she looked at us and she, she cocked her head to the side and she said, so you're very different, aren't you? Which is so deliciously Wales. It is just such a nice way to say what she was really saying was, you people are strange. That is exactly what she was saying. You're very strange. And I took it as one of the great compliments of our life. And I'll show you why. Open your Bible to 1 Peter. It's near the end of your Bible, 1 Peter. Go there and go to chapter 2, and let's pick it up in verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11 tells why I thought it was great to be called strange. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day He visits. Uh, this is the first part of what scholars call the, the general behavior section of this epistle. It, um, it describes appropriate responses to struggles in life, uh, especially in citizenship and employment and home life. Um, Peter here exhorts Christians to live differently because we are different. And, and we know that eternity can be different. As we put it in your notes, be strange, right? If you're online, there should be a link for you there. We're so thrilled to be with you. If you're in the auditorium, open up your bulletin on the left side, you'll see be strange. Peter has a lot of fun with the idea of strangeness and aliens. I want you to look here. Very beginning of the letter, back in the very first sentence of the letter, he employed uh, this word. We translated exiles. It's the word parapidemos. Uh, parapidemos um, is literally a person without a country. Somebody with no country. Think Tom Hanks in the terminal, right? Okay, no country at all. Um, then, not too much later, in chapter 1, verse 17, he uses this term, uh, parochia. Uh, parochia is a word for a resident alien. Th this is somebody who has a home country, but they don't live there. They, they, they live in a different land with everything that that entails, including um, limited rights. All right, then we get to the passage we just read, verse 11, and Peter employs both terms. He does parapidemos, and he does a form of parakia, but, but the form is really, really rare. I'm not just in the Bible. This is rare in all of Greek literature. It's hardly ever used. It's the term pariukos. Pariukos is a way to describe a foreigner as somebody who is strange, okay? It's not a kind word. Okay, this, is, this is somebody who is a foreigner that it can only be described as a weirdo. Okay, this person is strange. So look at those all together. Do you see what Peter's saying? We live here as, as people who are scattered on earth. 
those without a country here. We have a home country, heaven. We're merely resident aliens here, and we are, to the people around us, to the, to the natives of this place, we are parukos. We are flat-out strange. Jim Morrison was on a walk uh, going to Laurel Canyon in L.A., and he was struck by, by something about difference, and he grabbed a piece of crumpled-up paper out of his pocket. It was actually an envelope, and he wrote, he wrote a poem on it. Uh, some of you are old enough to remember this was a huge hit song. Uh, People are strange when you're a stranger. No one remembers your name when you're strange, when you're strange. Now, that's not Scripture, but that's not too far off from Peter's prose. We need to embrace our strangeness because this is not our home. Of course, that brings up the question you're asking in your, your favorite alien imitation. What then does it mean to be strange? The Q48 modulator. Uh, thank you, Marvin. Great question. Peter answers in three ways. What does it mean to be strange? First, don't feed the fire. What you do is you say to sin, I'm good. Uh, apeko is the Greek word we translate abstain. Um, apeko is a really cool idea. It means to abstain from something. Get this, because you don't need it. You don't, you don't need that junk in your life. Uh, the early 21st century developed a kind of weird slang, and, and it's ubiquitous. When somebody says, no thank you nowadays, they don't say no thank you. What do they say? I'm good, right? I'm good. When I was in college, <clears throat> a bunch of guys I knew began to experiment with drugs, and I, and I looked at that, and I said, uh, Apeco, I don't, no thank you, I don't, I don't need that. That doesn't, that doesn't seem right, healthy, wise, or good. And, and I was made fun of for it, but I have never, ever regretted that decision because I was quite good without it. Um, you've done the same thing with a guy in our church. He was on an important business trip, and all the vendors wanted to go to a strip club, Right? And he just looked at him and he said, hey, I've enjoyed the day, enjoy working with you guys. No, thank you. I'm good. You know what he did? He sat in his car and he talked to his wife the whole time and read his Bible. They just thought he was so strange, but he has never regretted that decision. There's a lady who's sitting here this morning uh, that recently had a chance to hear gossip. And she, when her friends started talking about other people, she just excused herself from the conversation. As she said to me later, Wayne, I don't need any more gossip in my life. The point is, when sin opportunities arise, and they always do, say, no thanks, sin, I'm good. How do we successfully live as strangers? Say no to sin and live honorably among slanderers. Look at verse 12 again. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when, does it say if? Does it say if? No, it says when. When they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day He visits. That's a euphemism, day He visits for when Jesus returns. Uh, that's talking about the, the second coming of Christ. For many years, uh, this guy, Bascom Bailey, he was a district judge for Anderson, Cherokee, and Leon counties uh, in East Texas. A lot of my friends who uh, lived in Palestine and around Palestine, Texas, knew Judge Bentley. They spoke very highly of him. By all accounts, he ran a very fair, strong court, and, uh, and he, he was a tireless promoter of good things in East Texas. But get this. There was a popular uh, public radio show, uh, the host there, uh, Joe Ed Bunton, he, he decided that it was wrong for Judge Bentley to be that popular. And, and he began to make it his on-air mission to smear Bascom Bentley. He, he repeatedly called Judge Bentley corrupt, 
which was not true. All the time on the air, he started calling him lazy, which was also not true. But even though neither of these slanders was true, it actually began to affect the working of the judge's court. So what should Judge Bentley do? Look at the text. Look at verse 12 and think about how that kind of slander should be handled. Because quite frankly, if you're not dealing with it now, you will. Did Peter say if slandered? What did he say? When? Okay, so, so what should you do? There's a big clue right there in verse 12. What's that word right there, everybody? Honorably. So I'm going to show you six options, six things that you could do when slandered, and you tell me which ones are honorable, okay? Slander back. Honorable or dishonorable? Scripture specifically prohibits it. Write private letters offering to meet and, and set the record straight. Does that sound honorable or dishonorable? Yep. Uh, how about defend yourself everywhere, online, offline, underline, over the line, everywhere you can, defending yourself, honorable or dishonorable? Dishonorable and not wise, because it never works. Um, refuse to speak ill of the slanderer in any setting whatsoever. Very honorable. How about hire a hitman? <laughs> you laugh. Um, if all else fails, file a defamation suit so you can get on with your work. That's honorable, actually. It's biblically honorable. Totally acceptable, and actually there's provision for it throughout the Bible. The three honorable actions are the exact ones that Judge Bentley took. Um, he, he, he wrote many times to this guy and received only hate mail back. He refused. Even years later, he would never, ever, ever speak ill of Mr. Bunton. And finally, he did file suit. He won, of course. And by the way, it's not easy to win a slander suit. But he won, and, and Bunton foolishly appealed it all the way up to the Texas Supreme Court. I just want to read to you, just to close off this story for you, I want to read to you from the decision by the Texas Supreme Court. This is, uh, this is in the case of Bentley versus Bunton. You admit, said the court, that you cannot prove your theory about Mr. Bentley's corruption. You knew that he denied your allegations made against him. You expressed doubt to a friend there was any basis for the charges you were making. You deliberately ignored people who could have answered all your questions. This is slander, proof of actual malice. For this, we rule against you, Mr. Bunton. Close quote. Now, we don't always see justice like that on earth, but even when we don't, we can use the moment for good. That's the third point of being strange. Use the moment for good. Just think through verse 12. Okay, look at verse 12. Why would people praise God the moment Jesus returns? There's only one group of people that's excited when Jesus returns. Christians. Only strangers get excited about the coming of Jesus, who is the ultimate man without a country, right? So verse 12, think this through. It's indicating that these lost people, these Gentiles who slander you, they, they come to faith in Jesus, precisely because of the way you respond to the crisis they force on you. In the midst of the crisis, I must remain undaunted, not just for myself, but also for that poor person who needs salvation just as I once did. I must maintain virtuous intentions toward the non-Christian who treats me with actual malice. Peter heard Jesus be very direct about this. Look, here's what, here's what Peter heard Jesus say about this. Uh, read it with me. Matthew 5, 44, all together. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How is that possible? It's not. It's not, at least not in, in our own strength, it's not. But Christians have a superpower. God's Spirit 
indwells every believer in, in Jesus Christ. We are empowered to do what is impossible for humans. It's right there in our annual theme verse. Here, read, read this with me. 2 Timothy 1.7, our annual theme verse. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. All God's people said, I do not have to stay afraid. I do not have to give in to hate. I can use the superpower of the Spirit, and I can love the one who persecutes me. In his book on Peter, Mark Buchanan highlights the, the impossibility of this. It's impossible, he says, to use evil for good unless you rely on God the Spirit. Look what he said. If the Spirit does not stir, fill, and direct both our life of faith and our quest for virtue, we will grow stunted and bitter like fruit strained out from hard scrabble ground. Any such virtue is usually no more than a repertoire of self-serving gestures. Close quote. Conversely, by God the Spirit, we can actually bear rich fruit because we can use everything for good. To stick with his fruit metaphor for just a moment, we can spread manure of this world on plants and see really good things come from it. Amen? Now, expanding the theme of glorifying God, Peter says that we have been called to find favor with God. That's the point in the, in the rest of our text. Let's read starting in verse 13. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing what, everybody? Good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Verse 18. Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if, because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. We fulfill God's will. We find favor with Him by doing good. That's something verses 13 through 15 emphasize. Submit to every human authority. Silence fools by doing good. And what is the context? Being slandered. Submit to authority and do good even when that authority is unfair or it's allowing others to be unfair. Plato, even Plato, who had neither the Spirit nor the Scriptures, understood this. A famous scene where, where the, the philosopher Plato is told about another philosopher who is slandering him terribly. And Plato says only one thing. He says, and I shall live in such a way as to prove him wrong. Not bad. Some of our high school ladies here in the church are studying First Peter in their small group, and they sent me a note. Uh, they're studying it just like we are. They sent me a note that's a great illustration, perfect example of this. Um, it's a character from Francis Hodgson Burnett's book, A Little Princess. How many of you have read or seen the movie's Little Princess? Oh, it's so good. You, you need to. It's old, old fiction, but it's really good. This character says this. She says, when people are insulting you, there's nothing so good for them as to not say a word. Just look at them and think. When you will not fly into a passion, people will know you're stronger than they are because you're strong enough to hold in your rage, and they're not, and they say stupid things they wish they hadn't said afterward. There's nothing so strong as rage except what makes you hold it in. That's stronger. Well done. Mahatma Gandhi um, 
was, how do I, how can I let me put this delicately. In many ways, he was, uh, he was a nut, okay? He was, he was absolutely a nutcase. But, but, Gandhi submitted to the governing authorities of his day, and he did much, much good. I want you to compare Gandhi with the sepoys of 1857. Sepoys faced the same kind of unfair colonial oppression, and they rose up in rebellion. You know what they did? They tried to silence the foolish people who were oppressing them by killing them. Anybody here know enough Indian history to know which one of these worked? Anybody know which one, the sepoys or Gandhi, which one led to freedom, to, to, a, to an established India? Which one? Gandhi did, right? We find favor. We fulfill God's will. We actually spread freedom by doing good. Riots and burning and looting and unlawful protests do the exact opposite. Instead of submitting, we rebel. Instead of silencing, we inflame. We make everything worse. Instead of teaching fools, we become fools. Looking at the last section of the passage, go down to verse 18. Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. Down to verse 21. For you were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. We find favor with God by imitating Jesus in suffering, following in his steps. Uh, That's where we pick up on the right side of your notes. Uh, we gain favor by imitating Jesus in suffering. Now, we're going we're gonna to come back to that middle part, verses 16 and 17, because that actually summarizes the whole text. But first, we're going to see Peter carry that command of verse 13 all the way down into everyday life. 13 through 15, he talked about governors and big authorities and emperors, and, and, and those big fish aren't our normal problems, right? Our personal employers are a much bigger part of our lives. Remember this. Always remember this about about Roman slavery and Christianity. There were enslaved Christians. In fact, there were a number of enslaved Christians who came to be elders in their local church and had authority as an elder in their church over their master who was a member of the church. You understand that? For for example, I want to introduce you to this guy, uh, Clement. Uh, At the time Peter wrote this, Clement appears to have still been a slave. Uh, in Rome. But he had become an elder. In fact, he was the teaching elder at the largest church in Rome. And there were members of the imperial family who submitted to his leadership as members of his church. In fact, one of them was the cousin of the emperor. One of the highest ranking people in all the known world submitted to Clement in his church. So Peter's asking a very important question. Should these slaves like Clement, who, who are free in Jesus... Should they just stop working for their earthly masters? The answer is no, because Christians work as to the Lord, and they work in imitation of the Lord. Let me explain. The Apostle Paul dealt with the exact same question. I want you to read with me uh, from what Paul wrote in Colossians 3. Uh, You join me on the underlying text starting in verse 22. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched. Those of you that own businesses want to post that up everywhere, don't you? It's just, yeah, they just stick that all over the wall. Um, As people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord, not for people. Knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord, you serve the Lord Christ. Very good. But, but, but wait a moment. You're saying in your, in your, in your Gandhi accent, Gandhi, very clear voice, excellent English, but he spoke through his nose, very directly like this. I do a good, I do Gandhi, I do well. 
I do a good Gandhi. Um, it's a little bit like singing like James Taylor. You have to do it through the nose. Uh, it's, it's perfect. So Gandhi asked question. It's a very good question. What if the boss is cruel and unfair? Great question, Mahatma. Thank you. Okay, Paul that we just read, he emphasized that Christians work as to the Lord, right? Peter stresses that we serve in imitation of the Lord. Peter says followers of Jesus truly get to follow in suffering. I think, I think the modern theologian John Nugent captures Peter's thought really, really nicely. Uh, I put this in your notes. I liked it so much. John Nugent says this. First Peter is a subtle and subversive letter, which is true. I wonder if you caught this. He says, especially evident in chapter 2, where the author asks readers to submit to human authorities, all the while referring to those authorities as fools. Did you notice that? Submit to human authorities, who happen to be fools. All of you who are bosses need to take a moment here. Take a breath. That's what Peter's saying. We're fools, but you're to submit to the fools. Insisting that believers live as free people and granting the emperor, get this, he wants you to grant the emperor only the same honor that is due everyone else, but not the love he craves or the fear he expects. Peter reserves such love and fear for fellow believers and God, respectively. This is not run-of-the-mill social conservatism. It is what John Howard Yoder called revolutionary subordination. It is the power of God demonstrated from a posture of apparent weakness. These slaves are asked to be Christ followers who subvert injustice the exact same way Jesus did, by bearing up under it and leveraging it for salvation, close quote. That is well said. One time I taught Peter at a conference and I received uh, this question after a session. Got somebody raised their hand and said, is Peter calling... For Christians to be doormats, just continually wallowing in low self-concept and standing silently in some kind of tacit approval of evil? The answer is no, 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 no. Wonderfully, Peter gives a resounding no. You know what he does? He outlines here this biblical concept of voluntary surrender. Peter calls for voluntary surrender in imitation of Jesus. I just want to ask you two questions. Is Jesus of Nazareth a doormat? Okay. We're talking about the Lord of all creation and all that has, was before creation. And that's all you can give me is four people saying no. Let's try this again, shall we? Is Jesus Christ a doormat? No. no. Does he tacitly approve evil? No. no. So you're to be in imitation of him who is neither a doormat nor an approver of evil. The Christian is completely free, and that freedom is purposefully harnessed to a fourfold objective. Now we're finally going to get back to verses 16 and 17 we skipped over. Honoring all, loving the Christians, fearing only God, and, and honoring governing powers. This is the heart of the passage. Here's the big takeaway. Uh, verse 16, let's go back to what we skipped over. Verse 16, submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honor the emperor. Main point summarized in our notes, we gain favor by exercising harnessed freedom. Throughout our time in uh, 1 Peter, I've quoted Martin Luther quite a bit because I think Luther understood and he taught Peter so well. Uh, for example, 1525, Luther wrote a book called On the Bondage of the Will. And, uh, and I think I can do justice to the thesis of that book here. Um, he says, sin prevents humans from working out their own salvation. 
Um, Only God, says Luther, is completely sovereign, true from the Scriptures. When God redeems a person, because only God can redeem a person, Luther points out from from the Bible that that means God frees the entire person, including that person's will. Everything is free. So the human is then liberated to voluntarily serve God. It's a very important distinction. Isn't that great? You, you are free, and the wise person harnesses that freedom to serve God. Slaves in verse 16 is really, really interesting. It's the awesome word doulos. Now, doulos in verse 16 is different from euketes, uh, the word for house slave that we read in verse 18. Uh, believe it or not, doulos is the stronger bond, uh, even though it's voluntary. Because doulos pictures a bond slave, someone who is completely at the service of another. But this is so amazing. Doulos is voluntary. A doulos chooses to be a bond slave. It's a scenario that the doulos looks at and realizes this is what's best, so he or she willingly surrenders. They harness their freedom to another. Not surprisingly, and I've never taught you this before, many of the citizens in the Greek city-states for centuries hated this word doulos. They just hated it. They, they, were, they were so in love with the, what they saw as the majesty of creature perfection in man. They were just so excited about humankind that they hated the idea of anyone harnessing their freedom for anything, except maybe the state. There were a few other people that said, okay, maybe if the state needs it, I'll harness my freedom to serve the state, but that's it. And that's the way things stood for centuries until this guy came along named Socrates, all right? Or if you're Bill and Ted, Socrates. And... Um, And he said something really fascinating. He was in a discussion with a bunch of dorks called the sophists. That's the official term for them, is dorks. Um, You can look that up. He's in this conversation with the sophists, and he ends up saying something really intriguing. He says, well, but wait a minute. They were talking about doulos. He says, but everybody enslaves himself to something. And that's, that's pretty good. The sophist, he said, you're enslaved. He went on that conversation. You're enslaved to your own pursuit of happiness. Wouldn't it be better for you if you were actually enslaved to something more noble than just your own pursuit of happiness, he asked. So that's the background. Okay, so that's the history of the background. By the time that Rome conquers Greece, that's where the word doulo stood. It had this this kind of positive from a thinking man's point of view, and a negative if you were all concerned about your own personal happiness. And that's the the feeling when Peter chooses that word to use. I recently enjoyed a great discussion about this with the young adult Bible study here at our church. And we looked at the actions of the very talented singer Adele. Um, Summer of 2021, she gave an interview, a whole bunch of interviews, you know, touting her new album. Adele Adele had to release a new album so we'd know how old she is. And, And she... That was lost on you? Okay, talk to somebody young, you'll get it. Um, anyway, she, she released a new album, and, and in these interviews, she was describing about her divorce and the impact of that on the songs and why she was putting out the record. And I want to read you a part of her interview with Oprah Winfrey on CBS. Okay, she said this, and I quote Adele, The upcoming album was written with my son in mind so that when he's in his 20s or 30s, he can understand who I am and why I voluntarily chose to dismantle his entire life in the pursuit of my own happiness. Would you just let that sink in for a moment? It's amazing honesty, first of all, but also very, very accurate. 
voluntarily dismantle another person's life for my own pursuit of happiness. The wisest response I read to that came from Professor Carl Truman. Um, he said this in, in First Things, a magazine. He said, this radical act of self-love, and I don't have time to go into it, but you can look that up. He's also, uh, he's also making fun of a terrible op-ed that was in the New York Times. Um, this radical act of self-love involves sacrifice. Obviously, not self-sacrifice, for who in today's selfish age would ever want to do that? Instead, it involves the sacrifice of other selves, especially children. And none of the pious talk about how beneficial it can be to wealthy, successful, ambitious parents can hide that fact. Close quote. Self-sacrifice is harnessed freedom. Sacrificing others is oppression. That's what it is. Oh, we cover it with a veneer of liberty and talk about our own freedom and our pursuit of heaven, but it is just oppression. The opposite of, of harnessed freedom is to voluntarily dismantle another's life. Thank goodness none of us ever do that. Hmm, let's see. You know what Peter does? He gives four commands at the end of this little section here. And these four commands brilliantly tease out and expose the ways in which you and I actually voluntarily dismantle other people's lives in our own pursuit of happiness. First thing he says, what does he say? Honor whom? Say some people? Everyone. Honor all. I was in line at the grocery store. I only had a couple of items. I had a great deal to get done. Um, now, I need to stress that this is not one of those days, which normally is the case. It's not one of those days where people were waiting on me or I had an appointment to get to. I, I, I had time. I just was busy. Behind me was this lady with an entirely full cart uh, and triplets who I think had had their fill. They'd managed, it seems like they had managed the first three miles through Walmart just fine, but when it came to that last half mile, they, they were done, and, and I don't blame them. What is the honorable? How can I honor everyone? How can I honor my neighbor in that moment? What's the honorable thing to do? Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, my wife has told me not to come home with any more children. <laughs> we saw my, one of my kids saw the, uh, the movie Despicable Me. Do you remember that one where he adopts the three little girls? And, and he came home and said, Dad cannot see this movie. We, we will adopt three little girls. Um, three little kittens. Anyway, um, the honorable thing is to, is to let her go, right? And I, I am so ashamed to confess this. That was not automatic. I stood there, for, and I've tried to train myself to honor everyone, but I, I've gotten very used to honoring myself and pursuing my own happiness and, and getting through the grocery store so I can get out of this place, right? And I had, to, I had to stop. I had to pray for a second. I knew what the right answer was, but I had to talk to the Lord and ask for his empowerment. And then finally, I stepped aside and let the poor lady go. Honor everyone. I'm sure we can all think of hundreds of examples where we don't naturally desire to honor other people. Even, even if you salute, it's with a grimace, Right? Now, there are those difficult times where the other person is absolutely and completely dishonorable. There are evil parents on this earth. There are murderous governments. There are wicked employers. There are dishonorable superior officers. What do you do then? 
In World War II, the U.S. Army had to deal with this. Sadly, they had to deal with it quite a lot. There were so many combatants in so many places that it inevitably led to these difficult times where soldiers were forced to deal with abject evil. They had to deal with it in the enemy. They had to deal with it in, in other armies with whom they were fighting. And, and I hate to say it, they had to deal with it in dishonorable superior officers. So the Army put out a book. Uh, actually, they revised a book called The Rules of Land Warfare. And, and for time's sake... I just want to read you one of the things they addressed in this. They addressed all these scenarios. We're just going to read the one about superior officers, okay, because that's probably the hardest one. There were superior officers that were telling people that they needed to mistreat captives, that they needed needed to do reprisals against civilians, all of which is against the laws of war. So here's what Section 346 said in 1942. In the event of clearly established violation of the laws of war, the soldier may legally resort to such remedial action as may be deemed appropriate and necessary, close quote. That's pretty good. You do not have to obey or participate in evil. You do need to honor to do what is appropriate and necessary, and sometimes the way you honor is by doing whatever is appropriate and necessary to make things right. Peter next says to to love Christians. We do what's right. And we love Christians. He even calls them your brothers and sisters. Christians are related. In Jesus, we are quite literally family. And that, that family is built on mutual love. Some friends of mine have two kiddos. And the dad this last week posted a photo of them along with a caption where he said, uh, I am overwhelmed by their cuteness and affection for each other. That's what your heavenly father wants to write about you. I love what Max Lucado said a long time ago. He said, if you're a believer in Christ, God has your photo on his refrigerator, right? I would just add to that and say he is longing for you to give him a reason to post your picture online and say, look at how well my boy loves people, loves his sisters and brothers. I know, yes, I know, other Christians are stinky, they are stupid, they are shallow. Yes, yes, it's true, but... Have you looked in a mirror lately? It's not just them. I don't know how to tell you this, but it's you too. When I really examine my soul, I am, I am much more amazed that any other Christian shows love for me than I feel good about my condescension that I would show love to them. Peter commands us also to fear only God. Look, he says, fear God. The context seems to indicate he's saying that's the only thing we fear. We're set free, and we choose to subsume our liberty to become bond slaves only of God. Peter's original audience was dealing with what has, by our time, become a time-honored tactic, but it was new then. What they were doing was, was people around Christians were, were trying to hem them in and work on them such that they would fear people. Because if you can get Christians to fear people, you get them totally off their game. Um, Hitler's teams did a remarkable job of this. They turned an entire society into an enforcement tool in the mid-20th century. In in Nazism, uh, under Nazism, any Christian who spoke against the evil actions of the state was laughed at. First they laughed at them, and then over time they systematically blocked their advancement. Then they made it impossible for them to have employment, and finally they took away their physical freedom. Stalin did the same thing. Hitler and Stalin didn't invent these strategies, but they did them quite well. Imagine what they could have achieved with social media. It's just frightening to think of, isn't it? And of course, that's what we face today. Laughed at, marginalized, blocked from employment because you follow Christ only. It's scary, isn't it? 
How scary? Glad you asked. Jean Edward Veith addressed this in an article I, I, um, I read. Uh, this, this came out um, last week. Jean Edward Veith, really talented researcher. He said, as an undergraduate, I took a history seminar on early 20th century Europe in which we studied the rise of fascism, which, to my surprise, was actually an avant-garde form of socialism involving some of the most distinguished thinkers and artists of the day. After a great deal of study and conversation with other academics, in 1993, I wrote Modern Fascism, a really good book. Let me, let me try to give you, uh, let me explain, it'll take too long, let me sum up. Here's, here's the thesis of Modern Fascism. A set of ideas, he said, is emerging from today's academic world that is startlingly reminiscent of what the fascist theorists were saying in the 1930s. Individual identity is a myth insofar as identity is really determined by culture and ethnicity only. Uh, laws and social conventions, those are just masks for power. Human-centered values are part of a corrupt Western civilization. The transcendent meaning of reason, objectivity, language, it's all an illusion. Um, is it possible, he asked in that book, that those who hold these views do not realize that these are also the doctrines of fascism? He closed his article with this. The article by the way, is called Modern Fascism Revisited. It says, does it sound familiar? The Nazi regime's approach to dissidents bears a strong resemblance to the mentality behind today's cancel culture. And here he quotes from his book again. Those who dissented with the regime were not seen as people who disagreed intellectually or philosophically, but as people with hostile wills. In rejecting the common will, they were guilty of not belonging. What did Peter say about you? Your people without a you don't your country's elsewhere. You're strange. Right? This is perhaps why the Nazi apparatus was so thorough in its interrogations. What was wanted was not so much conformity as assent. Those who disagreed were exhibiting a contrary will. They were not skeptics. They were enemies. Close quote. It is terrifying to live under fascism. But listen, do not be frightened. Peter has the answer. Fear only God. Frederick Buechner addressed this really powerfully. He wrote an observation on Psalm 23. This is good stuff. The 23rd Psalm, said Buechner, does not pretend that evil and death do not exist. Terrible things happen. They happen to good people as well as to bad people. Even the paths of righteousness lead through the valley of the shadow. Death lies ahead for all of us, saints and sinners alike, and for the ones, the ones we love. The psalmist doesn't try to explain evil. He doesn't try to minimize evil. He simply says he will not fear evil. Isn't that cool? I'm going to minimize it, but I am not going to fear it. For all the power that evil has, it doesn't have the power to make him afraid. Buechner goes on. And why? Here at the very center of the psalm comes the very center of the psalmist's faith. Suddenly he stops speaking about God as he, because you don't speak that way about a person who's right there with you. Suddenly he speaks to God instead of about him, and he speaks to him as thou. I will fear no evil, he says, for thou art with me. That is the center of faith, thou. That is where faith comes from. Now, in the King James translation that Beekner was using, uh, thou is, is a really, this is one of the weirdest things about uh, history of language. Thou, when they wrote that Bible 400 years ago, it was a very affectionate, very close personal term. Isn't it hilarious that 400 years later we think of thou, O Lord, thou art. It's this, it's this far off kind of weird, but that's not how it was intended. It was intended as thou, really close. So we're going to read the 23rd Psalm in that Old King James, and I want you to listen for the thou and see it as what it is, a statement of rich closeness. Uh, join me on the underlined parts. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. 
He leadeth me beside the still waters. He, see, he, 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 he restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, fear no evil, none, for thou art with me. All God's people said, thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All God's people said? Amen. All right, that established. I fear only God. I'm ready for Peter's final command. Honor governing powers. That's what Peter meant by emperor. Right? By the way, at the time he wrote this, the emperor was this fellow, Imperator Nero, Claudius, Divi, Claudius, Filius, Caesar, Augustus, Germanicus, also known as Nero. As we noted earlier, this honoring is not fawning, it's not love, it's not fear. Remember John Newton's comment? Grant the emperor only the same honor that's to everyone else. Not the love he craves or the fear he expects. Peter reserves love and fear for fellow believers in God, respectively. So what are some of the best ways that we can honor governing powers. I think some of the best ways to do this are the smallest. Don't complain. Treat civil servants civilly. Smile at the DMV clerk, right? It can be done. <laughs> Obey traffic laws, right? That's how you honor governing powers. When I, when I first moved to this town 30 years ago, <laughs> um, the, the press materials put out by FISD were absolutely wretched. I mean, I, I, they were, they, it was horrible stuff. It was embarrassing that I was living in a town that had such awful marketing materials about the school. I never said a word about how bad they were, not privately, not publicly. But once I got established in town, I went and met the superintendent of schools, a wonderful guy named Justin Wakeland. And I went and met with him, and I said, hey, Dr. Wakeland, in a, uh, in a previous career, I was a school marketing director. I did that for a school district. Is there any way I could help you? And he said, yes, so loudly that I swear the windows rattled in that old, in that old office on Maple Street. He said, yes, you bet. What do you need? I said, well, I need somebody with whom to work who knows the district. And so he introduced me to this wonderful librarian for the school district named Catherine Fowler. And we became friends. Catherine really believed in FISD. She believed it could be great, and she believed we could do a much better job. So we started this. Neither one of us got any, any uh, income for this. We had a massive budget of $3,000, and, uh, and we started the Frisco ISD marketing department. And by golly, it wasn't very long before things started looking pretty good. And the district grew and grew, and those two continued to bless for the next 25 years. Really wonderful work. And here's what I learned through that experience. I learned that when we honor the governing authority, we don't complain about it, we honor it, sometimes we can help improve its service. All right, let's close with this question. Got a question for you. Which of these four is the hardest for you? Raise your hand if the hardest for you is getting out of the line, honoring, honoring all, honoring everybody else around you, even all the weirdos. Which one, how many of you, that's, that's hard? You struggle with that one. Yeah, that's right. Uh, how many uh, loving the brethren, those creepy people with whom you're supposed to grow up into Christ in eternity. How many struggle with that one? Yeah, very good. Don't be offended. The person next to you raised their hand. 
All right. How many of us, this is mine, how many struggle with fearing God and not fearing people? Fearing God only. Okay. How about honoring the emperor? Uh, being kind to the, yeah, boy, that one, that got some response. All right, we better pray. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters that we will, by your empowerment, I pray this, that we will work on whichever one of those was hardest for us first. So for me, help me to fear you only. For a number of my brethren, help them honor those who are serving them in civil service. For others, loving the brethren. For others, honoring everybody. Lord, by this, we pray that we can be honorable. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope, I hope you will be able to be here. Story and Song is just, it is such a sweet time. So December 12th, uh, speaking of things coming up in December, uh, December 24th is Christmas Eve. It's on a Friday this year. Uh, we'll have three services, 335, 30, and 11. Um, more data on that later. We'll have little things you can give to neighbors and coworkers, but, but just plan on that. It's a it's a precious, precious time. Uh, speaking of precious times, one last thing. Tonight, um, that's tonight. Tonight is uh, the parenting lab, the last one for this year. And I, I happened to see, I walked in the offices over on the other side from where mine is last week, and I saw some of the prizes, the door prizes are putting together for these. So cool. Really, in fact, I think I will adopt a child so I can come to Parenting Lab. Um, parents, grandparents, uh, kiddos, this is going to be a great time. I know a bunch of you have been to them all year, but this should be really special. So be here tonight at 5 o'clock. Let's stand. And uh, prayer team, if you'd come forward, we, uh, we will pray with you when you come up right after I dismiss everyone. So let me dismiss us, and then you can come and join our prayer team. Now may you and I go in the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and by His grace may we live honorably, because that makes all the difference. In Jesus' name, all God's people said... Amen. Thank you, folks. Great to see you.